This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. I published my first book in 2012 titled Everything Voluntary, From Politics to Parenting. This book is an anthology of writings on voluntarist themes covering politics, religion, markets, parenting, and education. You may download the book for free at everythingvoluntary.com or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around, to schedule. Go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome to the podcast. It's November 17th. We're going to look at a few entries from Unpopular Opinion, the subreddit. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's a lot of these that I don't really care anything about, so I don't click into them to see what they have to say. And then there's ones that, a lot of them that I actually agree with, maybe in a slightly different way. Maybe they use the word should too much or something like that, but it's otherwise a good idea. And I'll click into that because it's kind of a springboard. I want to talk about that. Or there might be one that I totally disagree with and I think the person's an idiot or whatever or wrong. And I want to talk about why. So I try to make that clear as I go through these that They are from the unpopular opinion subreddit, but that doesn't mean that they're unpopular to me personally. They may not be unpopular to you. You may agree with it also. So that's really the purpose of this uh, using entries from this particular subreddit. So, all right. I just wanted to clarify that. I don't know why. All right. Here's the first one. It's from somebody named Mass Lax. And they write, we have to stop telling kids they're special. And I would say this is this is probably one I agree with. Let me, let me see what his reasoning is. He says, when I was growing up, my parents made a big deal over everything I did. At the time, I didn't realize all the praise I was receiving was in the context of my age. I wasn't actually a good writer. I was just good for a 14-year-old. They were only impressed because I was young. Now that I'm 19, I realize that there's nothing particularly unique about myself. Here's another example. When I was 12, I used to cook meals for my family. My parents used to rave about my cooking because it was impressive for a 12-year-old to know how to cook. Now that I'm 19, nobody cares that I can cook. Our expectation of children and teenagers is so low. Then at around age 16 or 17, we're expected to grow up all of a sudden. It's pretty messed up. All right, I, I agree with this person. I, I think that praising, which is, a, which is a type of reward, it's a type of behavioral uh, reward, if you will, or a reward for behavior, can be as damaging. Well, I'm not going to say as damaging. I think punishment, I was going to say as damaging as punishment. Punish Punishment for bad behavior is damaging. Praising or rewarding for good behavior 
is also damaging, although for different reasons. I'm not going to equate, you know, traumatizing a kid with with telling him he's a good boy. <laughs> um, but they're both examples of expressing conditional love. And I think, I agree with Alfie Cohn, that, that parenting and parental love should be given unconditionally. And when we punish our kids, the message they receive is that I'm bad and I'm not worthy of my parents' love in this moment, which is why they're hurting me. And I think it's a similar message when we're rewarding them. It's, I did something good and now I'm worthy of my parents' love and praise. And if I don't do good, then I'm not worthy of that. And I think that's just an absolutely terrible message to send our kids. I think that our kids need to know that no matter what they do, that they have somebody, preferably their parents, in their lives who will love them. Now, that doesn't mean that you should praise and and tell them what a good boy they are when they do things like hurt other people or take their stuff. Okay, they they need to know that what they've done um, has produced certain consequences in in other people, possibly even yourself. But they shouldn't. I don't think that that they shouldn't ever be confused about whether or not you you love them. And honestly, Al, Alfie Cohn explains this all a lot better than I do in his his book, which got me started on this whole peaceful parenting tract. It's called Unconditional Parenting. Um, I'll I'll link to that. And when my kids do something, I don't. I I took out that phrase. Oh, good job. I took that out of my vernacular a long time ago. So now it's no longer good job. Instead, I prefer to reinforce um, how they feel about the activity. So when they come up and they show me, you know, a picture they made, I say, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, excited for them because they're excited. And then I say, did you have fun making this? Yes, it was a lot of fun making this. And if I like it, I'll say I like it. Or I, I, I try, you know, I try not to be rude or anything like that. But if it's something, and this obviously depends on their age, but I mean, I'm talking as young as six or seven. I think that they're capable of receiving constructive criticism. So if they show me something that may have some issues with it, I'll say, well, what about this area here? And get them looking at where, you know, they may have done something slightly um, out of character for what they were going for, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I try really hard not to use phrases like good job. And it's so funny because <laughs> my, my, my parents did that a lot. My mom, especially, she was the one saying good job because she's the one, you know, that was with us for all of our little accomplishments, if you will. And she still uses that phrase today. For example, I just remembered this recently, my brother got a hawk because he's into falconry. Now, my brother is a criminal defense attorney. He's 34 years old. He's an adult. He's got three kids. Um, and he, 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 I don't know, he's always been into pets and stuff, but I don't know, for some reason he got into falconry and he got, they caught a hawk and he's going through training him and whatever. And he show, he shares a little video of it with the family. And the first thing my mom says is, good job, <laughs> right? It's like this, it's like this automatic pro, pre-programmed response to your kid doing something, accomplishing something, doing something well. It's a good job. <laughs> and it just made me think more about that. Like, like, like seriously, what is the point of saying that? What is the, it, it, do you believe that they're not going to continue with what they're doing if they don't hear somebody important to them tell them that they're doing a good job? Like, do you feel like you need to say it in order to, in order to reinforce that you like what they're doing? and you want them to continue doing it, it's totally unnecessary. 
I think a better way to to reinforce is not to reinforce that that their behavior is compatible with your preferences, but to reinforce how what they're doing makes them feel, which is why you ask the question, how did that feel? How did you like that? Or something along those lines. So I've always done that. I, I think it's been pretty good for my kids. And the other thing is this idea of telling kids that they're special. I don't, I don't, kids should know that we love them and that they are important to us. But I don't think kids need to be told that they're anything special, that they're anything abnormally, there's anything abnormally better about them than other people. I don't think that that's how you um, raise kids not to be, you know, total assholes when they're older. (laughs) I think empathy is, and humility are important qualities in a person to have. And so I, you know, I tease my kids in a, in a loving way and it's fun and it goes back and forth. My, my son and my daughters, I, I, I engage in the ball busting, if you will. And I, you know, I tell them in, in lovingly playful ways that, you know, either, uh, they're dumb <laughs> or they're ugly or, you know, just, just, you know, different things to let them know that they don't need to get a big head about anything. Or that um, another thing is it's like we've, you know, we're having conversations about stuff and I don't remember exactly how we got on this topic, but it was a question of knowledge. And I made sure they knew. I was like, look, you guys are ignorant about a lot of things. There's a lot of things your peers know because they're being fed this stuff in school, you know, about U.S. history and, you know, whatever, that you guys don't know anything about. So it's important to acknowledge that you're ignorant. And that just means you don't know something. It's not bad to be ignorant. And the more that you do know, the more aware you are or that you become of just how ignorant you are about everything else. So it's important that you guys understand that that you are ignorant about a lot of things. And this just means it's an opportunity to learn something new. And then I said, if you guys want, we can go over where the U.S. Constitution came from, how this country was founded, and what the Constitution is and what's in it. So that became, over the next two days, that or no, it was a two-part. It was in one day. In the, in the morning before I went to work, we, we sat down for an hour, and I kind of went through this whole Columbus or whoever discovers America for Europe. And, of course, we talked about how it's been discovered before. Obviously, there are already people here. you know. So I didn't give them the whole uh, whitewashed version of it, if you will. Um, I say that a lot, don't I? If you will, if you will. Anyway, uh, but we went through that whole history, and then of course um, the col- the formation of the colonies, and you know how they they were different. They were like little nations, but they were ruled from England. And anyway, kind of gave my Rothbardian, I guess, version of all of that up until the Constitution, and we talked about how the Constitution was made in secret, and how they were they were just supposed to update the Articles, not replace them. It was a coup. The ratification all over all over the country was not entirely legitimate, not entirely kosher. I don't know. We just I just gave him a really, I don't know, in my opinion, a really balanced, non-mythical look at how it happened. That was sort of the first part. And then later in the day when I got home from work, I'm like, okay guys, let's let's talk about the con let's talk about the Constitution. Actually this was a three parter. I don't remember. I may have included this bit in the first part, but we talked about the the three articles, the three branches of government and what they do, kind of a general overview. And about how the Constitution was designed to limit what they do. But the federal government has found a lot of ways around these limits, right? So I made it clear that constitutions don't stop people from doing what they want to do, at least not permanently. 
it may provide a temporary roadblock when a court happens to enforce it. But the Supreme Court only hears 1% of cases that it's petitioned for. So we talked about we talked about how ridiculous that is, and we also talked about how ridiculous the House of Representatives each member represent each member represents almost a million people, and how utterly impossible it is for a person to represent that the interests of that many people, and how the country is probably too big to be governed in this way anymore. You know, stuff like that. Uh, but we never got into the Bill of Rights, which are probably the more important part, the more interesting part, I would say. So that was that was part that was part two. Um, later on in the day, we went over the Ten Amendments and you know what they supposedly protected because I thought they should have some idea about this, particularly the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Tenth Amendment. Those are probably the the five. Those are probably the five best, in my opinion. Um, anyway, so that's that's what happened there. It was like, look, you kids are ignorant. You don't know about any of this stuff. And that turned into, look, you know, we can fix some of that. Let's talk about this stuff. Just like, you know, a few months ago, we looked at, you know, what money is and where it comes from and what inflation is. And these are fun. I enjoy doing these. And I'm sure there'll be other lessons, if you will, in my kids' futures as as they get interested about something and they want to see what I know about it. All right. So I kind of went on a bit of a tangent there. <laughs> Let's go on to the next one. This is by somebody named Tara Baby Girl. She says, being able to pay your way out of jail shouldn't be a thing. She says, I come from a rich family. My boyfriend comes from a rich family. And we both have paid our ways out of jail time for things like shoplifting, possession on weed, etc. We both know people who've done the same thing. And here's the kicker. It's perfectly legal to do that. Even though the system benefits people like me, it's really troubling how people can just pay their way out of jail time for crimes they've committed. Like you could, like you could just pay bail and have zero consequences. So are you telling me we should incarcerate the poor for petty crimes that can that can be dropped with community service or parole without making them sit in jail for years and months till their cases reach trial, which only causes them to lose jobs and stay poor, leading to a vicious cycle of poverty? While rich people like me can do can do petty crimes and say oopsie and pay some money and walk away, that shouldn't be a legal thing allowed by the government. All right, so this person's touching on a couple of themes. They're touching on the idea of bail. They're touching on the idea of being incarcerated before being convicted. And they're also touching on the idea of prisons as punishment for breaking the law. And these are three themes that, you know, I think I think a voluntarist has something to say about. We'll start with the first, or we'll start with the last, and we'll go backward. The idea of prisons. Um, I don't like the idea of prisons because now, I should say that there are, I have seen prisons in other countries, particularly some Asian countries and some European countries, where the prisons do a much, much better job of keeping its prisoners engaged in life and uh, much more comfortably than do prisons in America. I think prisons in America are absolutely terrible. If we must have prisons, I think there are much better models to go on. I think prisoners should have many of the same uh, liberties that non-prisoners do. Um, they should be allowed to work for an agreeable wage with the employer, right? The prison, the warden, the, the, the government shouldn't get in the way with that. If it's something that can be worked out to where the prisoners either were working remotely or, um, you know, doing something within the prison, uh, you know, building something, manufacturing something, and companies can 
somehow set up shop um, and hire, you know, groups of prisoners at a time at a, at a competitive wage for their condition, obviously. It just, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be centrally planned is what I'm saying. Then I think that should, that sort of thing should be allowed. Um, you know, they should, they should, they should be allowed to, you know, go to school, get education, get degrees, all that sort of stuff. And I know some of that happens, or at least it happens unofficially. Um, I don't know. I just, if prisons make sense, number one, they don't make sense for anybody who's convicted of any nonviolent crime. Okay. Possession, stuff like that. Shouldn't, shouldn't be a crime at all. The only people in prisons should be people who are violent offenders. And even then, there should be attempts at restorative justice. Okay, people who commit violent crimes should be given an opportunity to make amends with their victims or their victim's family. That can be an incredibly uh, healthy and heal a healthy healing process. And I'll link, I'll link to a podcast episode on uh, Kibbe on Liberty where he talked to somebody about restorative justice, and I found it absolutely fascinating. You know what? I'm I'm committing to linking to some things. Let me take some notes here. Hang on. Okay. So that that should be a thing first, and you you can you can totally avoid even being charged if all parties are satisfied, right? There shouldn't be, in my opinion, there shouldn't be crimes in the non-tort sense. I think all crimes should be torts. It should be there's a victim, they were injured, they need to be made whole, and their opinion on the matter, either them or their family, should hold a great great deal of sway on how that. Um, restoration, if you will, can, can happen, right? I think, I think that's how people heal. And I think that's how people who have engaged in violent crime can, can begin their own internal healing process and becoming better people. But I get it. There's, there's some people that just are so, I don't know, criminally insane, if you will, so psychopathic that they're not interested in all of any of that. I don't think that's the majority of even violent offenders. I think there is salvation for most of them. So prisons don't make sense because it's it's just it's just a, a temporal punishment. It doesn't fix anything. It's let's just take your let's just put your life on pause for a bit. Meanwhile, the the rest of the world is moving on and leaving you behind. And then when you're done with your sentence, we're going to kick you out into the world and hope you can catch up. So that that shouldn't happen. Um, but for for the people who are absolutely beyond becoming functioning members of society, should there be any sort of compulsory prison-based system. I don't know. This is this is a bit more complicated. I think there is an interesting idea put forth by Bob Murphy, and I'll link to this too, I guess, where he talks about prisons being voluntary. And they're voluntary in the sense that there might be people who are so infamous that they've been totally kicked out of society. They can't get any support, excuse me, anywhere for anything. And the only way they can even get a warm meal and a warm bed is to voluntarily check into one of these voluntary prisons and agree to stay there and maybe work um, in exchange for that. So I'll link to that. That's kind of interesting. But I think in this country, we do prisons very badly. And I think the idea of prisons is, is, is mostly misguided. I think there's probably a better way to handle most, um, most people that, that we need to do something with who commit violent crimes. The people who are nonviolent offenders, prison shouldn't even be on the table. All right, so that was the third thing. What was the second thing? Oh, yeah, the second thing was um, incarceration. 
purely on the suspicion. Okay, where they're looking at somebody, they're good for the crime, they haven't been actually been convicted of anything, and they're being arrested and they're being incarcerated. And then there's there's a price put on that. And if they can pay the price somehow, or their family can pay the price, um, then they can be released on bail um, and maybe continue in their life. Probably not. They, depending on the crime, they've probably already been fired. And it will probably be difficult for them to, to get a job and, you know, until trial. So somehow survive until trial. And the, the point this person's making is that's much easier to do for people of means than it is for poor people. Um, you know, there are, there are bail bond companies and whatnot that will reduce that down to 10% of the bail amount. They'll cover the rest as long as, you know, they can, they can guarantee and you can guarantee that you'll show up for your trial and they'll get paid back. And the bond money is paid back if you show up. I understand. So it's not just, you know, it's not just, it's not just profit for the courts or whoever, unless you, you skip bail and you don't show up and now you have an arrest warrant, blah, blah, blah. So, this is a, a broader philosophical question of whether or not people should even be arrested and incarcerated under this scheme if they have not been convicted of anything. Well, maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but here's, here's something to think about. If they are, and their life's totally ruined, and let's say you know the family had to sell a house or mortgage it or whatever to get them out of jail, and it's a, a long process, and things are just totally, totally ripped apart in their lives, and then they're found not guilty two, three years later. Should there not be some sort of consequences for the people, you know, for the, for the, for the plaintiffs, whether it's the state or not, who have totally, totally violated this person's liberties, falsely imprisoned them, kidnapped them, taken their wealth, destroyed their lives, right? Inflicted untold amounts of damage on them and their family. Should there not be some sort of, should this, should this in and of itself be not, be some sort of tort that must then be adjudicated. I think it probably should. You know, and there's there's people today that, you know, new evidence, DNA evidence or whatever comes along and they're, they get a new trial or a judge releases them from jail and then they, then they end up suing the city or the state or whatever and they get some kind of payout. So I guess, you know, it's something like that. But I'm talking about just from the very beginning, you know, we're arresting people, we're imprisoning them, and then it turns out they're innocent. They need to be made whole. That that in and of itself, when when it turns out they're innocent, that becomes a tort. That becomes that that type of false imprisonment type of crime that must be they must be made whole from. And maybe if people were held, individual people, not just you know I'm a prosecutor, you know, and I've I've got some sort of immunity, and I don't have to you know I have to bear the consequences of my actions personally. Um, you know, I think they would make a lot fewer of these types of mistakes if they did have some sort of accountability here. So that's part of this bigger problem. And then the first thing I said was this idea of bail and how should bail be handled? Well, you know, there's places that allow cash bail. There's places that don't. I think that um, if you allow it, then that that is more beneficial to uh, less wealthy people. So it probably should be allowed. Um, things, things, it just seems like things should be equal. Now, should should we totally remove bail? So even a rich person who's arrested and imprisoned, should they be held without bail, just as a poor person would be? Or, or in a sense, they're held without bail, and, and a poor person may have bail, but they can't afford it, so it's like they're being held without bail. Well, no, I mean, I think that whole idea is, is a difficult issue. Um, I, just, I just don't think it should be disproportionately burdensome on people without means over people with means. And I don't, I don't know what the solution is to that other than everything else I've already talked about. So 
All right. Boy, I've taken a long time on each of these. Let's just do um let's just do one more. All right, this person, Shiny Awesome YT says Disney princesses are terrible role models for children. And this is one I gotta disagree with. Um they go on. Let's let's hear some of their reasoning. They say Okay, so you guys know that Disney princess movies are targeted at children, so it should have protagonists that are good role models for children to follow on and learn some morals from. Um, I don't like that use of the word should, but I digress. They they say it doesn't have to be realistic. It just needs to have a good protagonist rather than a damsel in distress that needs to be saved by big, strong man kind of protagonist. So this, this seems um, – I disagree with it because it seems incredibly narrow, right? When I When I think about – the Disney princesses, and there's a lot of them. Tell you what, let me pull up a list. Let's let's just quickly go through each one and, and see what what the some of the the good things and the bad things are about it. All right, so here's some of the classic ones. We'll start with Snow White. She's somebody who runs away from her evil stepmother queen, and uh, which is you know that's a that's a that's a that's an autonomous action, right? That's I'm getting out of here, right? That that's her taking her liberties in her own hands, and she's leaving. And then she finds, you know, a house and then it happens to be owned by seven dwarfs. And she negotiates with them to stay that she'll, you know, she'll take care of them. She'll, she'll keep it, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the witch later on comes around and gives her an apple and she eats it and she, she goes into a sleep. So now she needs to be rescued. But up until that point, those are some pretty, um, those are some pretty cool characteristics that a little girl or a little boy could emulate, right? The autonomy, the liberty, the negotiation. So I'm okay with Snow White. Let's do Cinderella. Cinderella is an oppressed girl, impressed by her stepmom and her stepsisters, but she hangs in there, right? She doesn't give up hope. She continues to do what she needs to do to survive. That's laudable. Okay, given her situation, that's laudable. That's a, that's a characteristic, right? She doesn't give up. Could she run away? Could she take her autonomy and her liberty in her own hands and just run away? Yeah, that's what Snow White did. She doesn't do that. Instead, she gets visited by a fairy godmother who doles her up. She goes to the ball um, and she charms, you know, she charms the prince. And, you know, then she's got to get back by midnight. And then, you know, he's coming around trying to find who the, the glass slipper belongs to. You all know the story. And she breaks out from being imprisoned in her house because she wants she wants to fit the shoe on her foot. And her stepmom and her sisters know it, it, it belongs to her, but so they imprison her. But she, she busts out. So that's laudable, too. Um, all right, Aurora is Sleeping Beauty, and not not to talk about what you know the update did with Maleficent. As far as the original, she's really not in it much, and she is you know she touches the spindle and it pokes her and it puts her to sleep, and then the prince comes along and kisses her and wakes her up. So she she doesn't do much. So if if any if any of the if any of the princesses are just the damsel in distress, Aurora fits the bill. So let's go on. We got Ariel. Right. For some reason, she's again, autonomy and liberty. She says, I want something more than, you know, these, these, these cultural prescriptions that are being assigned to me. I want to go where other people are. And she takes herself there and she makes a deal. She negotiates. She makes a deal with the devil and she goes. So there's, there's laudable things there. What about Belle? Belle is the fifth Disney princess, Beauty and the Beast. Um, she's pretty independent, right? She she doesn't have a mom. She's 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 bookish. She's you know so she's got intellectual interests. That's all laudable. So she's really intelligent in that sense. Her dad gets kidnapped by the beast. She goes and rescues him. Right? She doesn't go to some man. Go rescue my dad. She does it herself, and then she 
negotiates to take his place. So that's pretty laudable. Let's see. Then there's Jasmine out of Aladdin. Um, she kind of she also kind of escapes the cultural um, oppression as a princess, right? She doesn't want to just be this. She wants to to leave and go experience normal life. So she takes her autonomy and her liberty. She disguises herself and she she goes out and she does that, right? She's saying, "I'm a person. I can do what I want." And obviously, if people see me and recognize me, they're going to give me unwanted attention. So I've got to disguise myself. Right, so she's smart. She shows intelligence. She shows autonomy. Those are laudable. Um, then we got Pocahontas, um, Native uh, po- Poetan, Native American. I'm trying to remember what the story was here, other than it was really about her saving John. John was the damsel in distress, right? John, uh, um, trying to find the name. It was Smith, right? Yeah, John Smith. So he gets captured by her tribe at some point, right? And they want to kill him because of their grievances with the white man. And she comes and throws her body on him. So he's the damsel that is distressed and she rescues him. So that's laudable, right? And then we got Milan. What does Milan do? Milan goes, pretends to be a boy, fights in a war and becomes a war hero. Okay, that's not a damsel in distress sort of thing. Then we have Tiana, Princess and the Frog. She was a commoner born. She was really good friends with the the highborn girl, uh, the blonde girl. And she gets noticed by the the Prince Naveen, the king of Maldonia. This is 1920s New Orleans. And I'm trying to remember that story. Um, Aren't they they both frogs at some point? I don't know. I, I think it's a story of her, again, showing autonomy and will and gumption and going through the adventure and pulling herself through the adventure in order to save herself from the voodoo guy, as well as Prince Naveen, and bring them bring both back into humanhood. Um, and then there's Rapunzel um, from Tangled. And she's, you know, she's a prisoner all of her life. Her not real mom is keeping her this way. Um, but she, you know, she reads and reads and reads. And she, you know, so there's uh, intelligence there and there's knowledge that she's gained. That's all laudable. And then she is constantly wanting to free herself, right? She's constantly wanting to take, you know, rip off her chains and leave the tower. And eventually she does. So, right. So there's bravery, there's courage. And then there's, again, she's authoring her own story here and she's going along and she wants to get to the kingdom and she, she wants to, to go forth. That's all laudable. And then there's Merida from Brave. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of independence in her and, you know, stubbornness and all that sort of stuff. I'm trying to think of that full story. My, my, uh, my wife and my, my youngest just watched this recently. I know her mother was, um, turned into a bear. Sorry. Should I have given a spoiler warning before I started talking about these Disney princesses? And, you know, she eventually discovers this and then tries to keep her safe and, and, and bring her, bring her back to being a a human again. So that's all pretty laudable. Then there's Moana and Moana is one that's like, She's getting called to the water to go out, right? Her 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 family has a, a a mounting problem of there being less and less fish, edible fish, and she has this instinct to to go forth out onto the water and to find you know what's causing this problem, and she does that. So that's bravery, it's intelligence, that's you know the human spirit, it's autonomy. Again, you know she's the hero in the story. She is Moana. These are all laudable characteristics. And then there's, you know, there's other people like Tinkerbell and Esmeralda and Jane from the Tarzan movie. They all have interesting um, 
characteristics. And then there's, um, these are, I guess, unofficial princesses according to this list. I don't know why. But there's Anna and Elsa from Frozen. They're not, my understanding is they're not called Disney princesses because it's a, it's a marketing term. And because they, they were so powerful as their own unit, as Elsa and Anna from Frozen, that they didn't lump them together with the rest of the princesses. So it was kind of a, a marketing differentiation. Um, and, you know, what's their story? Anna's got like some powers and she doesn't want to hurt people. So she leaves. And Anna goes after her to try to save her sister. Right. And that's all about sisterly love. Again, those are all laudable. And in the second Frozen movie, Elsa has this, this person from incredibly far away somehow calling to her. And she thinks it has something to do with her power. So she needs to go after it. So again, this shows autonomy and, and initiative and, I've got to figure this out. And Anna goes with, you know, to, to be with her. So, you know, other than Aurora, I'm not seeing a lot of damsel in distresses that need to simply be rescued by a man. So I think this person, and I'll, I'll link to this resource if you're curious, but I think this person's wrong. I think Disney princesses are incredible role models. And I do want to add that my girls have absolutely loved Moana and Elsa and Anna and all of the Disney princesses. We've se- they've seen all the movies. They watch them all on Disney Plus now. And we've seen the live action ones when we can. Uh, but they also like superhero girls too. They like Supergirl. We watched that show. And they like uh, Wonder Woman. And my, my daughter, my one daughter likes Harley Quinn. She's kind of a bad girl. And my, my youngest daughter is into the, the, uh, the, these movies called Descendants, Descendants 1, 2, and 3. It's about the kids, I guess, of all the villains, Maleficent's kid and Ursula's kid. And they're, you know, they're doing their stuff and they're strong characters in their, those movies. So whether it's Disney princesses or female superheroes or these Descendant movies or any number of stuff that we've watched, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of really good female role models for my daughters. You can find laudable characteristics, em, immutable, emu, characteristics that they that it would be good if they emulated from each of them. Again, with the exception, I guess, of Aurora, Sleeping Beauty. And maybe you could dig into that. And maybe there is, a, there is something you could find. So this person's wrong. And I thought that that would be fun to just kind of go through that. I know it made this super long. I actually had like two more unpopular opinions I was going to go over, but this really, this really uh, covered it. So all right, that's gonna get that's that's gonna be it. Whenever somebody says the Disney princesses are terrible role models, say you're absolutely wrong. Go listen to this episode. This guy goes through all of them and he says why they're all actually really good role models for not only young girls, but also young boys in different ways. Uh we also talked about telling kids they're special and we talked about uh, prison and bail and whatnot. All right, that's gonna do it. Please remember, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, don't ask permission. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing. Please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.